Welcome uh, to Two Cities Church, and I'm going to learn how to do this this service. Uh, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, today marks the one-year anniversary of two weeks to slow the spread, okay? Or two, you're like, it's been a long two weeks. It has. Or two weeks to flatten the curve. And it has been a very uh, interesting last year. Let me just stop and talk to us about it, because I know your family and your industry or your business or, and certainly your life has been affected by it. But I want to tell you particularly how our life has been affected by it as a church. It was a year ago on Thursday when Governor Cooper said, uh, no more gatherings of 100 people or more. And we thought, well, okay, this is like you. I've never heard of anything like this. And we just, we were watching what other people did and we said, oh, I got this idea. Let's call it, and I liked it because it was alliteration. You guys know how much I love alliteration. They said, let's just say we're going to be online only. And we'll do online only for two weeks. And kind of just behind the scenes, I was actually, we made this decision on a Thursday. I was actually supposed to leave the next day for vacation for spring break. And they said, you're not leaving for vacation right now because we need you to film all this stuff. And so I remember jumping up here and, and trying to explain how we were not going to meet for two weeks. And I remember how we were talking as a staff. We were like, okay, what's this going to be like to not meet for two weeks as a church? Well, you know what happened, right? Two weeks became three months for our church. A little over three months. And I don't believe in purgatory. But if I did, it would be those three months of online only. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it felt like. Anyway, so we're, we're doing that. And then we came back with a Thursday night service. And on a Thursday night service, we did that. And many of you visited us for the first time during Thursday nights. Thursday night, it was at 6.30. And we did that for a whole season. And then we came back on, right after Labor Day in early September. We came back finally on Sundays, which means this. We had 26 weeks, six months or you could say half a year of not gathering in person on Sundays with multiple services like we had. And I, I want to say a couple things. One, I'm thankful for, the, for this truth. Crisis creates clarity. So whenever, and this is good for you to know, right? You find out bad news from the doctor. It's like, well, it will create about as much clarity as you've ever experienced in your life. You'll start to realize what's valuable, what's not, how you should spend your time. That's exactly what happened with us. And I want to just encourage you to say, we've stopped doing nothing that we were doing. By the grace of God, we had so little fluff that we were doing as a church that everything that we were doing, we still are doing. Uh, secondly, I want to just thank our staff. I've not got to do this publicly. It's been a year. We have incredible staff. Like any organization, everybody's job changed overnight, and our staff joyfully did it. I also just want to say that, and I'm humble to say this, that just to tell you, a year into this, we are more clear about what we're about as a church. We are healthiest we have ever been as a church and we are more excited about the future than we've ever been. So it's been an incredible season. As I think about the future, and I talk to those who are still online only. And, and again, there's many reasons for that, and we understand that. But as the weather gets nicer, and as the vaccine gets out, and as we head into the summer, here's what we're asking every person to ask this question. What is your plan? What is your path? What is your pace? All of those are helpful, right? And your plan can't be, I'll do whatever I feel like doing. That's not a great plan. The plan can't be, uh, I'll, I'll do this when everything gets back to normal. It's never getting back to normal. You know, it, it can't be, I'm going to watch what everybody else does. That's not a good plan. And then it has to be, what, what is going to be your path, right? Path means I have a next step. Path means I come, uh, okay, fine, I'm going to come Sunday night, I'm going to do the mass required. Okay, I'm going to do VHQ mass required. Okay, I'm going to come back for the first time because I'm not missing two Easter's in a row. You got to go, okay, well, what's my plan? What's my path? And then what's my pace? Pace means I have dates, I have deadlines, I have details, and I know where I'm headed with these things. So we are very excited about the future, and I just want to say thank you for all of you who've walked with us. What we've had to do over the last year, and this is not easy, is we've had to make decisions as an organization. 
which is very different than making a decision as an individual or as a family. And we have tried, by the grace of God, to focus on the main things and put our arms around as many people in our church as possible as we've moved forward in a crazy global pandemic over the last 52 weeks. I want to take a moment, publicly thank God for this, and then we're going to dive into our sermon. Let's pray. Lord, we just, I just want to publicly thank you. I thank you for the grace of God right now in, in, on our church and in our lives. I thank you for all the stories that have come out of this time. I'm thankful for the people who've come to Christ when they started watching us when we went online. I thank you for the baptisms that have happened. I thank you for the sin that has been revealed and then repented of as families had to live together in very close quarters, as anxiety about finance and career and job and future and health and control revealed so many things in our heart. I thank you for our community group leaders. Lord God, bless them and how strong they've been and the woman's leads with them and just the way that they have come around hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and had to be flexible and meet outside and beat over Zoom. And just, I just thank you for all the ways, Lord, that our church has come together in this season. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can type to or turn to Matthew 7. If you're new, here's what I want you to know. We don't think, I don't think in terms of Sundays or in terms of uh, sermons, though I love Sundays and I love sermons. I, I tend to think in terms of an entire series. So here we are, we're in this series. It's like, what are we doing here for three months? Well, we're doing a lot of things. We're walking through this series. We are now two-thirds done. Now, now, if you look at chapter five, and you don't have to go there right now, chapter five of Matthew is about Jesus Christ as the fulfiller and interpreter of the law. So he comes in, he says, you've heard, but I say to you, and he fulfills the law and he interprets the law. And then chapter six, he gets into like, hey, here's how you pray, and here's how you fast, and here's how you give, and here's how you deal with your stuff, and here's how you deal with your anxiety. And he, he kind of packs all of that in this idea that God is our father. So chapter, chapter five is, uh, Jesus is the great center of scripture and great interpreter and fulfiller. Chapter six is, God is my dad and my father. Isn't this awesome? Chapter seven, God is my judge. Not as excited about chapter seven. <laughs> but this is actually, and you'll know this, if you ever had a good dad, that's what a good dad is. A good dad is, my dad loves me so much and I would never ever want to do anything to disappoint him. I have an incredible dad, and I do not want to have to tell him I did something sinful and foolish and receive his discipline. That would be for my good and would be out of love. And so what we have in chapter 7 is, remember, this is a sermon. And what, what is, Jesus was a preacher. And, and one of the things, because everyone's talking about people, what, what is preaching about? Preaching is about calling people to a decision. It's you have to do something with this. Teaching is like, here's some interesting things, and I hope you like it and take some notes if you want. Preaching is like, all of you must respond to what God has said. And in chapter 7, what happens, interestingly enough, is Jesus keeps talking about God as judge, and then it's like, well, there's two ways, and there's two trees, and there's two houses, and there's two foundations. He's like, You've, you're headed toward a de destination. You have to make a decision. This is what chapter seven is about. Now, I want to look at verses one and two real quick. Let's look at verse one and two. We're going to cover chapter seven, verses one and two this morning. Uh, chapter seven, verse one says this, judge not that you may, or that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured. So now this is interesting. So it talks about judgment. Now, Christians and I know not all of us here are Christians, but those of us who are Christians and who understand the good news that Jesus Christ lived the life we couldn't live and died in our place for our sins on the cross and took the judgment of God for us, we sometimes get a little uncomfortable when we're told that we might be judged. I mean, it's like, I'm, 
doesn't Jesus just give me a massive hug when I get to heaven? Isn't that, is that what happens? I mean, do I get to heaven and everything's like, we don't talk about my life? Isn't that kind of like, didn't he die for all this? Like, what is this about? Well, the Bible says that you're saved by grace and you're evaluated by works. And that this is interesting, that you're made in God's image, which means this is why you're going to judge, and we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, what it means to be made in God's image is you are a moral being with a conscience who will judge. That's what that means. And then here's what, here's what it means that you're made in God's image. You are so valuable and you matter so much. And what you do is so significant that God is going to hold you accountable for your whole life. Some of you are like, I would like to have a meaningful life. I'll tell you how to have a meaningful life. Everything you do matters. Like, I don't know if I want to have a meaningful life. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be accountable for everything I do. And so God's going to say, now look, this is interesting. He's going to say, how you're judging will be how it's measured. Now, how do you want to be judged? I would like to be judged with everything taken into account. Would you take my family background into account, please? Take my motives into account? Take my intentions into account? Take my weaknesses into account? Take my time in history into account? And he's going to say, this is interesting. You cannot escape being judged. God will judge you. This is why we're thankful for the cross. This is why we just sang about the cross. Because we believe that our, our sin has been punished at the cross, but we are still going to have a conversation with our dad about our life. Do you know in heaven, or you know in the, in the book of Revelation, it says God will wipe away all the tears. I had a mentor tell me he believes those are the tears of your final judgment. Of, of, of you wrestling with how you lived your life. What, what is the wiping away of the tears? It's not just you're not sad. It's like, you, okay, yeah, he dealt with all. It, it'll, your, your final judgment will be very hard, and then it will be over if you're in Christ. And you will be even more thankful for the cross afterwards. So let's go back just to verse 1 for a second. So just in verse 1 is the most misquoted, misunderstood, misused verse in the New Testament without question. Judge not. Let's do the old KJV that we all know. Judge not, lest you be judged. Okay? Which means a couple things. Um, first of all, here's what people mean when they say, judge not, lest you be judged. They, um, they normally think, that they think it's an excuse to do whatever they want to do. Right? And, and, and obviously, Jesus is not saying, when he says, judge not, lest you be judged, he's not saying, turn your brain off. He wasn't saying to those people, put a coexist sticker on the back of your camel. And act like all ideologies and all perspectives and all lifestyles are the exact same. He's not saying that. He's not saying don't have conviction, don't have a spine, don't have an opinion. He's talking about a certain type of judgment, okay? There's two types of, well, actually, there's four types of judgment in the Bible, which is some of you are Bible nerds and like me, and you'll be interested in this. Um, the word judge is used four different ways, only one way negatively. The, the one way that it's used negatively is the critical, condemning spirit that thinks that you are above others that you are better than others, and that you are different from other people. That's the, that's the negative sense that we're going to talk about in a second, that he uses. There's three positive ways to rightly condemn something is to judge it. Jesus does that often. God does that at the end of time. Um, to judge something, getting all of the facts in a court of law is a type of judgment. The idea that we have this whole idea of innocent till proven guilty is, I mean, it's unbelievable. That's an unbelievable idea that arises out of Scripture. That because you're in the image of God, like, I'm going to assume that maybe you didn't do it. And I'm going to assume you're valuable enough. We should probably spend a lot of money and have a court case just to make sure. Well, that's the idea of judgment. I want to rightly judge. And then the, the, the type that Jesus is using today is to be discerning. 
To know the difference between right and wrong. To know the difference between good and evil. So the big idea for this sermon today is Jesus is going to teach us how to judge without being judgmental. Now, there's two ways that people take this verse out of context. The first type of person takes this verse out of context, just not lest you be judged. So that to defend themselves from ever being judged by you. And some of you, you've done this. Some of you have done this. You actually, you've watched other people's lives so closely. And, so, and, and the smarter you are, the better you are at this. And this is why it's so hard, some of you. You're very smart. So what you do is you actually watch other people's lives, your spouse or your friends or your dad or your kid. And when they do something wrong or sinful, you tuck it away. You're like, okay, I'll remember that in case they ever confront me about something. Because then I'll be able to confront them and then they won't say anything else. The other way that people use it is, and I don't want you to use it this way. The other way people use this verse is good Christians. And some of you, you guys are great Christians and you love the Lord and you see wrong in other people's lives. You see your kids doing something. You see your friend doing something. And you say something like this to yourself. I mean, who am I to judge? Well, I mean, I, I, mean I, I'm such, I, I got my own problems. And we use it as an excuse not to get into other people's lives appropriately and to talk to them about the things that they need to be talked about. And so I want to read Matthew 7, 1 through 6. And I want you to see this. This is, this is Jesus speaking to the church, assuming, and this is so good because your assumptions and your expectations help define your life. He's assuming and expecting that life in the church will be difficult. Sinners will bump into sinners, and we're going to have to learn how to deal with it. So if you'll turn me, we're going to read chapter 7, all of verses 1 through 6. Here's what it says. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So big idea in this passage is Jesus wants us to learn how to judge without being judgmental. And let me just say this, some of you, for some of you, and you know who you are, this is the issue in your life. You are the constant, critical, condemning person. You, just, I mean, you are, right? You are the fault finder. You are the demeaning wife. That's who you are, among other things. Or you're the domineering husband. I mean, who, who knows? Or you're the overbearing parent. This is the issue, no matter what your kid does. You, you, you have to say something. You always see the downside of everything. They could be trying so hard, and the first time they mess up, you're there to point it out. This is why some of you, you, you struggle so much, you're like, I don't have any friends. <laughs> we could tell you why. <laughs> you know, it's like friend, friendships, like it's, 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 it's costly the older you get. And we don't want to be around somebody who is constantly figuring out all of our faults and pointing them out. And so what I want us to do today, Jesus is so helpful. I, I, this is such an incredibly practical passage for so many reasons. First of all, it's fair, I, I'm just going to kind of tell you the whole thing, and then we're going to go through it little by little. But think about this. First thing he says is, guys, I, I want you to take the log out of your own eye. But he doesn't just say that. I mean, that would be a cool sermon. Hey, take the log out of your eye. It's like, wow, that was convicting. Thanks, Jesus. Uh, and it would be convicting. It's like, well, you know, because we'll get into all that is and why we don't do that. And, but that's not it. He goes, I want you to take the log out of your eye. And then... 
I'd like you to see a speck in your brother's eye. Well, you actually already see it. You're, you actually you see the speck because you have the log. Let's, we'll, we'll get there. Um, but, but he says, hey, you see the speck. And so, but don't just see it. I want you to do the hard, 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 hard work of taking the log out of your eye in the intimate, close work of doing eye surgery on another person. And I want you to be incredibly helpful. You could say it this way. The, the point of this text is to teach us how to be a coach instead of a critic, right? Both see wrong things. Teach us how to be helpful without being a complete hypocrite. Teach us how to be generous, right, we, and how we judge. And so I want us to, to unpack this verse by verse. First, I want to talk about the idea of judgment and what does it mean to be judgmental. Now, to be judgmental is to be prejudiced, to prejudge. Prejudice means I prejudge, Right? We tend to prejudge based on appearances, right? I mean, how many people are still defined by their car? And it's weird because, and actually, this is an interesting thing. When you judge, you tell yourself more about yourself than about what you're judging. I'll give you an example. Someone pulls in in a really nice car. Two people see that. One person judges and goes, what does he do for a living? That's like, a, I'm impressed with nice things. That must be an important person because important people can afford that kind of car. Somebody else sees that and says, who would waste that much money on a car? <laughs> it, it, would be, it could be the same. It's the same thing. What, is it, what does it reveal? We don't actually even know who's in the car and if they, it was a gift to them and why they have it and what, you know, what their purpose is and if it's a rental. We don't know any of that. Let's assume we don't know in the situation. But as soon as you judge, what you know is what's in your heart. So we tend to judge by appearances, um, how people look, the color of their skin, how attractive they are. There's been lots of studies of who gets better jobs. You know, if you're, the taller you are, the better job a guy tends to get. It's just, there's all this very, very interesting thing. We tend to judge people based on their accents, okay? If I meet somebody and they have an English accent, I think they're smarter than they are, probably. <laughs> if I meet somebody and they have a southern accent, the opposite, okay? And we tend to be, and this is good to know, you, you judge people based on your personal experience of life, right? So how you educate your kids, you tend to think is the best way. And it's kind of hard for you to, th I mean, you could say it, but it's kind of hard for you to think like, why wouldn't everybody do what I do? And so you look at the homeschool people or you look at the public school people or you look at the private school people and you think, well, based on all my decisions, I'm kind of being judgmental and I think I've made the better decision. We tend to also judge people based on ourselves in the sense of, now what are people who are in better shape than us? People who take working out way too serious, right? <laughs> I mean, that's how I, I mean. How about people who are not as good a shape as us? People who need to take working out a little bit more seriously. <laughs> I mean, this is, right? Let me give you a couple. You might be judgmental if. You might be judgmental if. You, you critically judge other people for what they put in their shopping carts. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked at some shopping cart and just been like, family of 12? I mean, <laughs> are, you, are you working at a fast food restaurant on the side? I mean, what is, I hope you're selling that. I mean, you, you know, it's like you, you look at that. We, I, the one I'm, I'm so guilty. So I'm so guilty of all this. Have you ever given a backhanded compliment? That's your, you know, you don't sweat much for a fat guy. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's like, okay, you're being a little judgmental. Do you give unsolicited advice? Got quiet in here. Uh, we, uh, giving unsolicited, hey, I couldn't help but notice four things wrong with you and here's how you could fix those. I mean, that's kind of the un unsolicited advice. Or the one I'm most guilty of, do you judge people while they're working out outside, while you're driving comfortably in your car. Yes, I've done that. Uh, we, we created a word when I was growing up as a family. We called it wogging. When you couldn't tell if they were walking or jogging. We're like, well, 
So you guys are like, that's terrible. It was terrible, okay? <laughs> but a judgmental. So he's saying, okay, I want you to avoid judgmentalism, but you need to be discerning. And so look what he says next. Turn with me to verse 3. And by, by the way, he, um, he uses all of these in the context of community. Let me show you this. I know we're reading the same passage again, but look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? Notice brother there, or you, we could put sister there. This is familial family language. God is our father. The church is our family. Uh, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, notice, repeat it again, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, uh, three times the word brother's used. Here's what this means. This is meant for Christians in the church, how they deal with one another. So what we're about to talk about for the rest of the time, it, I mean, it might work in some circumstances and situations, other places, but it's meant to be how your community group relates, how your Christian friendships and your Christian family relate. And, and there's two words I want to give you as we think about this. When I read this passage, I think about relationship and responsibility. Relationship and responsibility. I, I hope you'll think about, when you think about it, if you're part of our church, you will think about our church in terms of relationship and responsibility instead of time and place. Most people think about the church or their Christian commitment in time and place. So, right, if I'm like, am I, you know, when I think about my community group, I shouldn't think about it this way, but when I think about my community group, one of the first things that comes to my mind is, I think, Wednesday night, 630 to 830. Which is true, and it's helpful, but it's, what is it? That's time and place. Or you can think about, oh, well, you know, Church, Sunday, serve one to ten one, nine to noon, what it might be for you or whatever. Versus what does it look like to say I'm a part of a community group and actually what I'm thinking about is relationship, these 10, 12, 15 people, and the responsibilities that scripture lays upon me based on these relationships. I can't pray for everybody by name. I can pray for everyone in my group by name. I can't bear everybody's burden. You can't bear everybody's burden. You could bear the burden of the 10 or 15 people in your group across time. And so you take the 59 unique one another commands of Scripture. There's 59 of them. And that's your responsibility to the relationships in your community group. And what really makes a, a Christian and Christian relationships deeper is when we stop thinking, my DNA group meets at 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. And we think these are the three women that I am in relationship with and I have a unique responsibility to. And so the timing may, we may, Meet shorter. We may go online. We may, whatever. It's about relationship and it's about responsibility. So in the context of relationship responsibility, if you look at verses 3, 4, and 5, he gives us this interesting thing. First of all, he says, and I almost, well, actually, maybe this is why the Lord has given me this right here. Okay. So imagine a log. Okay. There it is. <laughs> I'm improvising here. Um, so I was going to bring a, a, a log on stage. It was kind of goofy. But imagine this massive log. It's a really great uh, insight because the log does a couple things. Let's just talk about what a log does. First of all, a log hinders me from being able to see. If I had a massive log up here, I can't see you. Well, certainly at certain angles, I can't see you. So what is the, one of the things that tells us a log does? It blinds us. And, and this, this happens all the time, right? And we, we actually prefer to look at other people's specs. Why do we want to look at other people's specs? So we forget about our log. It helps me avoid the log in my life. I actually, and I'm not against activism. I'm not against doing things out there. I'm not against solving problems. But whenever I see like, you know, the classic millennial or the iGen person and they're like, we need to do something about this economy. 
It's like, do you understand how complex our economy is? What would ever make you think you could do anything to our economy and make it better? And then you find out that person's like $20,000 in consumer debt. They have a terrible job because they have a terrible work ethic. They're going to, they don't understand interest. That's how they got into all the consumer debt that they're in. And then you say to this, and these are the kind of conversations you have to have with people. Here's what I want you to do. Over the next, it's probably going to take you five years. First of all, you need to get more educated. And then you're going to need to get a job. And then you are going to have to learn something you don't know how to do. You're going to have to learn how to pay off debt. And then, and then over the next couple of years, what I would like you to do is maybe I'd like you to read this Dave Ramsey book and I'd like you to save one month of your salary and I want you to put it in an account after you've paid off everything else. And then during all this, maybe you could also learn how to be generous. It's like, okay, now that's going to be very hard and take you five to seven years. Then we can talk about what you, what you, you might be able to put a tentacle out and touch something else. But you are going to need to take all of your time and work on yourself. And nobody wants to do that. And it's such a genius idea that Jesus is like, you have to deal with the log. You, you have to. And what happens is we, we only see other people's specs. And we don't realize, now this is interesting. So the classic example of having a log in your eye and not seeing the speck, or seeing the speck in another person's eyes and not seeing the log in your own is, is King David when he's confronted by Nathan. If you know this story, it's so powerful. I'll try to set it up. King David, man after God's own heart, falls into sin, runs into sin in many ways, sleeps with the woman who's not his wife, Bathsheba, has Uriah killed, marries her, has a baby, seems completely unrepentant, and Nathan the prophet comes in one day and says, hey, King David. Sorry, I get emotional talking about this, but he says, hey, man, um, there's this guy, he had a lot of money, he had a lot of land, and I would have given him anything, and he went and he took this little guy's lamb, and that little guy, that was the only lamb that he had, and he took it for himself, this, this rich guy did. And David goes, that man will pay back fourfold. So what happened? It's like, well, he didn't forget the idea of justice and not taking what's yours. He just couldn't see it in his own life. And then Nathan turns to him in some of the most famous words of Scripture and says, you are the man. And he has to have this need to know, need to grow. I was self-deceived moment. And there's, so what, what, what the log in your own eye is, it's, it's being self-righteous. It's thinking that I'm, different than you, better than you, and a potentially and probably above you. Give you. You'll see this with people who, I know people who, you know, they, they look at other people and they, they judge how much they spend. And they look at it and they see it, right? They're like, well, I can't believe they would live in that neighborhood and drive that car and take that vacation and, I don't know, spend that much on that, which doesn't seem like we need to do that. And then you talk to the person and you realize this person is completely has the idol of saving which is an idol. It's like you are stingy, you are a super saver, and you are scared about the future. Do not think you're better than the person who's spending. You have the different problem. You're only able to see the spending because of your saving. In fact, the, the speck is there to remind me of my log. I see the speck to go, I've got a, I've got a piece of wood like that in my eye. And the problem in our church has been, not our church, well, yes, probably our church too, but the church has been, you, we only see specs and we don't see logs, and then we're in big trouble long term. So the church has a history of talking about uh, homosexuality and not talking about divorce. We have a history of talking about drunkenness and not talking about gluttony. It, it's, it's the speck and the log. It, it, I mean, we, this, this affects so many different areas of our lives. 
And so what he says here is, first, I want you to take the log out of your eye. Here's the second thing a log does. So a log blinds you. That's, it makes you self-righteous. And self-righteous people have three things about them. They're prideful, they're angry, and they're indifferent. It's this weird mixture. You'll know that about yourself because you'll be, you'll be prideful. I'm better than others. You'll be angry that people do that, but you won't want to help them. You, you won't be like, well, maybe I could help that person because maybe I have a different struggle and they've got a different spec and I've got a log and so I'll deal with my log, but I'll be able to help them with their spec. The second thing, though, a log, a log does, so you can't see, but I wish again, I wish I had this massive log up here with me. If I, if I had this massive log that was 10 feet long coming out of my eye, holding it like this, and I, and I walked down here, I would hurt you guys. That's, it's such a beautiful picture because what he's saying is if you have a log in your eye, you're going to hit and hurt everybody else. And you're not going to be able to get close to them. You've got to actually be able to get close to somebody because look at the next thing he says. He says, okay, so you've got this log and then you've got to get this speck. Now, it's eye surgery. And I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor or anything, but like, I mean, that's serious surgery. You've got to get very close to the person. There has to be a lot of trust involved. You're getting something very little out of a very sensitive part of their eye. So there's a couple things when you deal with specks in other people's eyes. And this is, and by the way, this is why you get a log out. And this is why this is such an important sermon uh, and such an important text for our church. Is what would it look like if everybody in this room was committed to getting the log out of their eye? I mean, look around this room. This is just one service. I don't know who's watching online. We could make a real big difference for Christ in our homes, in our cities, if we get the log out and then look around and go, okay, who's got the specs? And, 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 I, and, I, and I'm going to humbly say, I've, I've taken out my log. I want to help you with your spec now. So here's what you do with the spec. Minimal necessary force. You don't use more force than necessary. I don't need to put more pain or more pressure on that than necessary. I don't need to use a sledgehammer when I can use a hammer. I don't need to use a hammer when I can use a screw. I don't need to use a screw when I can push it in. Right? It's just like, what, what level of pressure do I need? And here's a couple things. And I give real practicals because some of you are very intuitive and you get it. You're highly relational. You're going to be able to do this really well. You're going to be able to help people. You're very um, calming. You've got a great personality. Others of you have to learn how to do these things. Like I had to learn uh, the multiplication tables. I just had to learn them. I had to memorize them. Now they're with me. So I want to give you a couple tools. Uh, one tool is when you're dealing with a spec, you have to ask, is it a sin, is it a struggle, or is it a strangeness? Okay? Um, when we got married, I, I, I realized, I didn't really, when you get married, you realize all these, well, sin, struggles, and all three come with that. You know, you, you realize all three. But I remember, I, 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 uh, and I had a Sonicare, kind of one of those toothbrushes, uh, electric toothbrushes. And I remember my wife, Margie, she says to me, you don't need, you have an electric toothbrush, and when you brush your teeth, you move your hand. You also don't need to move your head. I, my whole life was, had been moving my head during brushing my teeth. I didn't even notice it. It's strange looking. If you look, I mean, um, and I didn't realize it. I'm like, okay, that's a strangeness. So what you have to realize is, is so a sin is something that needs repented of. A struggle is something they need help with. A strangeness is normally something they just need to know about. We can't see ourselves by ourselves. Like here, let me give you a real practical answer or a practical thing. So you could be a bad listener and it could be a sin. It could be, I don't care. I'm on my phone. You're not important. I'm not listening. That's a sin that needs repented of. It could be, I'm just not a great listener. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I'm easily distracted, and I, I, we didn't grow up eating family meals together, so I'm not really good at sitting down and having eye-to-eye contact and conversation. Great. This is a struggle we're going to help you with. You could have a strangeness. It's like, dude, you listen and give absolutely no feedback while listening. Could you not? Could you make a listening noise every once in a while? I mean, could you give me something? 
That'd be a strangeness. And so part of it is like just helping, and this is what we need, right? We need each other to deal with sin, to deal with strangeness, and to deal with um, struggles. Now, now, here's another thing. When you do these things, these are just helpful tools, and if they're not for you, give them to somebody else. But you always want to do timing, tone, and tact. Timing, tone, and tact. So, you know, how do you confront somebody? Like, well, think about it. Like, you know, you don't, when you do eye surgery, at least I know of, you know, there's not like 50 people in the room. It's like there'll be very few of us there, just who needs to be there to make sure this is safe. When you confront somebody, it's like, hey, one person, usually, maybe two, you do it in, you don't text it. <laughs> you know, uh, you do it in person, eyeball to eyeball, face to face, usually just one person. In fact, Jesus says, go by yourself, and if they don't listen, then get one or two more people. But no more than that. Just keep the circle small. Um, and so it's timing, it's tone. Tone is, um, it, it's how you say it. It's, and it, it really is, here's the tone. I understand my logs in my eye. I, I understand that I'm the problem and I have a plank. I'm actually going to lead with my log. I'm going to lead by telling you how, man, I know, look, I, I, let me tell you this, man. I, I've seen how you talk to your wife. And I want to let you know that we had a couple years of difficulty in our marriage. And the only reason I know how to talk about this is because I've actually gone through it myself. It's like, well, that feels very different. I, I had a guy one time. That, uh, a couple churches ago, I was working, and he came. He was on our staff team, and he came to confront me about something. And he's a very godly guy, and came to confront me about it. And he sits down in my office, and he says, "Kyle, I've been praying about how to talk to you about this for several weeks." <sighs> you think I wasn't ready? I, well, I was completely overwhelmed. I'm like, "What is he about to tell me?" But I was ready to receive it because I'm like, "This, I believe this person has been praying for me for several weeks." And I trust that. And so I'm, I'm, he's probably going to be pretty careful with how he's thought about this. He's not just saying that to make it sound more serious. And then tact is how you say it. And you'll never say it perfectly. I'll never say it perfectly. It's always going to be kind of misunderstood and probably slightly emotional and all that. But what you do with tact is I like to say the phrase, help me understand. Can you help me understand why you've missed community group for the last six weeks? And then you, maybe you lead with your log again. Hey, I understand. I've, I've had busy seasons in my life. I know we don't have the greatest group. I know it's a school night. I, I, we've, my wife and I have had to wrestle with some of those same things. But can you help me understand why it doesn't seem to be a priority for you? I also like to say this. Don't hear the most extreme version of this. You know, you, 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 could, you confront somebody and you say, hey, you know what? Um, I, don't hear the most extreme version of this. You seem harsh with your kids. Please don't, don't hear the, I'm not saying that you're abusive. Don't hear the most extreme version of it. I'm just saying your, your tone with your kids is like, I've seen it a couple times now. By the way, normally when you confront somebody, it's helpful if you see it three times. This is just a practical help too. Because one time you may have seen it, and two times it may have been a coincidence, and three times it probably, it probably happened. And you'll have three different, and it's very hard for somebody to get away from you talking about three different times they did it. And you're not trying to, you're not trying to make them squirm. You're just like, look, our tendency is to get defensive. And so what he says is, here's what, here's what the church, it's a beautiful picture. Here's what the church community should be. Should be everybody in their private prayer room with the Lord saying, and in their Bible reading and in everything saying, Lord, please show me the logs in my eyes. And I, I'm sure I have many. And every time I see a speck, I'm going to be reminded of my log. And I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to. I'm going to be, because otherwise he says, verse 5, he says that you're a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who pretends and performs. That's the definition of a hypocrite. So you say, well, I, I want to be a humble hypocrite. 
I want to practice humble hypocrisy. I know I'm stumbling and struggling in this. Sometimes I don't even know myself if it's a sin or a struggle or a strangeness. I'm wrestling with that. And, I, and I'm trying to reach out and be helpful knowing that I've worked on myself first. But then look what he does in verse uh, 6. If you'll turn to verse 6, here's what he says. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, a lot of people, they, they don't know what to do with this verse. It is connected. It's meant to be in this section. It, it's interesting. It's a call to judgment. It's a call to right discernment. You have to notice who's, we'll talk about this in a second, but who's a pig and who, who's a dog and what's a pearl and who are you giving it to? And So there's a definite kind of practicing of this. It reminds me, have you ever heard of the, some of our young parents will know this book, If You Give a Pig a Pancake? Okay, this is if you give a pig a pearl, okay? Um, it just keeps getting worse. That's kind of the whole idea of the book. Um, and uh, what's interesting is if, or if you give a dog a diamond or whatever, this, so what, what's happening here is he's saying, it's a beautiful illustration. He's saying, you have these pearls, and the pearls would be the gospel. It would be the truths of scripture that are sacred and helpful and lead to eternal life and lead to the knowledge of Christ. He says, you have these pearls, but you throw them before pigs and dogs. And pigs and dogs is just, when we think of dogs, you're like, oh, I've got this cute hyperallergenic dog. It's like, that's not what we're talking about. Um, we're, t- we're, we're talking about, the dogs and that was like hyenas. It was like wild dogs that ate trash and attacked people, and t- pigs were the filthiest animals. And so dogs and pigs were, were kind of like, here's the idea. It, the idea is, with, with the idea of a dog and an animal, is somebody who has no spiritual life but only physical life. Somebody who's completely given over to their animalistic tendencies. And he's saying what's going to happen is you're going to give them something as precious as the gospel. And it's a beautiful illustration because he says, what happens if you throw pigs to pearl, or, or pearls to pigs? You throw pearls to pigs, the pearls see it, they think you're feeding me. They try to eat it. They don't realize how valuable it is. They choke on it. They think you're trying to kill me. They attack you. That's the idea. The idea here is not, and let me be clear, the idea here is not don't share the gospel with certain people. That would contra- it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. That would contradict the rest of Scripture. It's not saying that. What it's saying is you, we are to preach the gospel to all peoples, and there will be persecution. What he's saying is you need to be wise in your evangelism. And you need to decide. This is Jesus did this all the time. He would send his disciples out, and he'd say, hey, go to this village and look for a person of peace, and if you find no, so, so, nobody, shake the dust off your feet and leave. It's the idea that we're not, this is such an important concept, we're not trying to create spiritual interest as much as we're trying to discover it. That is a help. I remember when I was in college ministry, I know I tell you a lot of stories from those days because they were impactful for me. My boss, when I was in college ministry, he's like, all right, first six weeks of campus, I want you to meet 500 people. And I'm an extrovert, and I, and I love people. But that was a lot of people. And he said, because the temptation in ministry is going to be to find three or four people who you connect with and spend all your time with them. And they'll be interested in you and not interested in the gospel. And you're looking for people who are genuinely spiritual interested. And there's a direct connection between the number of people we share the gospel with and the number of people who come to Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul, if you read his stories, read, read Acts. The Apostle Paul goes to the synagogues. Every time he goes to, the, to a city, he wants to know where's the synagogue. Every time. Oh good, there's some good Jews there. So he goes over to the Jewish people and he preaches the gospel. And 99 out of 100 times very few believe or almost no one believes. And there's some recordings in Acts where Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he would actually leave the synagogue and go to the marketplace. 
and he'd go preach the gospel there, and they would get upset that he was giving the gospel to other people. And it's this idea, again, I, just, I have to say it, that we are not trying to create spiritual interest as much as we are trying to discover it. And in every relationship, we need to decide when is it time, not, we don't give up on people, we don't give up hope, we don't give up praying for people, but when is it time for me to move on? You th- I mean, think about, this would be an extreme example, but you got a next-door neighbor, and he's an atheist, and you've had the gospel conversation, and every time you have it, he just, it makes him more upset. And he's, he's like reading like Richard Dawkins online at night to, to give you, to fight about it with you. It's like, well, don't forget you have 35 other neighbors. And don't forget to pray for that guy, but it's time to move on. The gospel message is so precious. We need to get it to as many people as possible. So Jesus gives us this rule of how to be discerning in the church, log and speck. How to be discerning outside the church, pearls and pigs. Jesus himself talked about judgment in maybe the most famous passage that uh, in the New Testament. You've heard it before. John 3.16 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know that verse. But then verse 17 says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned... But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is an amazing uh, passage because Jesus says, I didn't come into the world to condemn it. And then you go, well, is that, well what does that mean? And if you read the whole passage, here's what he's saying. It already was condemned. The world already is. I didn't come to bring more judgment. That the final, when Jesus returns the second time, he's coming to bring the final judgment and all the things with it. But he said, guys, the world's already condemned. I, I didn't come for that reason. I came that whoever believes in me could pass from life or from death to life, from darkness to light, from judgment to grace and to mercy. So Jesus, he didn't only talk about the log and the plank, he, but he himself didn't have a log or a plank. But what he did was he went to the cross and he got up on the log and the plank himself and paid the full penalty for all of the logs and planks in our lives. Because this is a really important concept because what happens is the reason most people don't want to deal with their log, and it's understandable, and the reason most people don't like it when you talk about their spec, and it's understandable, is we don't know what to do with it once it's been revealed. You know, I don't know, your spouse or your friend confronts you about something and you like have to admit like, you are that person. You do have a problem with money or with alcohol or with entertainment or, or, some, or, or you're an unloving person or you're super selfish. It's like, what are you going to do with that? That's hard to deal with that stuff. It's like, well, where, where would I put in place that? Or maybe you've had a marriage for 10 years and a bunch of stuff comes out. And you're like, well, how are we ever going to deal with all this? It's like, well, we need somewhere to put it. We need somewhere to place it. We need someone to say, ultimately, we'll pay for this. And that's what we have, the gospel of Christ. And when you understand the gospel, there are three responses that need to happen today. For some of you, it might be all three, but for, for all of you, it's at least one. The first is to say, I need to take the log out of my eye. Some of you, and you know what the log is, right? You know it. You drink too much. You travel too much. You're overbearing. You're demeaning. You're domineering. You've got an addiction. You've got something nobody else knows about. You love money. I mean, who knows what it is? You do. 
And you go, I'm going to take the log out of my eye, and it's going to be painful, but it's going to be, I'm going to be able to see more clearly. And I'm going to be able to be a very, very helpful person. The second type of person is the person who has taken the log out of their eye. And there's more logs, but you've taken the log out of your eye. You've seen the speck in somebody else's eye, but you've not said anything. And you need to. I mean, really, you need... that man's wife wants you to say something, please. That woman's husband needs you. I mean, it's only going to, she doesn't hear it from him. She can't hear it from him in some way. She needs you to say something. There's kids that are like, would somebody please say something to my dad? He's the big scary guy in the house. But is there anybody scarier than him maybe? Is there anybody who could step up and say something to him? That. And then there's a third type of person. The first type of person needs to get the log out of their eye. The second type of person needs to help others get the speck out of their eye. And what a community we could be if we did that. The third type of person is the person who... We've been talking about the speck in your eye. Your mom told you about it. Your dad told you about it. Your wife told you about it. Sometimes you've had multiple people point the speck out. And every time, and it's interesting, if you'll watch yourself, you can normally, the average person can have about two thoughts at the same time. That's about it. <laughs> but you'll, but you'll, you'll, what you'll notice is if someone's calling something out in your life, you'll, get def- you'll be defensive. But when they leave, or maybe while they're doing it, you're going to be thinking this. They're right. I love money. I watch too much TV. I'm distant from my family. I drink too much. I eat too much. I'm a workaholic. And you got to realize, if if you don't do that, what's going to happen is you're going to continue to have the same pains and the same problems, and you're going to keep living your past Your past is going to keep showing up in your future until you admit, this is a speck, this is a log, but I know where to put it. I put it on the log and the plank that is the cross of Christ. We do that individually and we do that together. Let's pray. Lord, we just, I pray for all three of those types of people in this room. The person who says, I need to take the log out of my eye, and they know exactly what it is. It's It's a relationship or it's a financial thing. It's a sexual thing. It's a bitterness, forgiveness thing, and they just need to take it out of their eye. For others, they, they, they see it. They, they actually know somebody in their life, and they've been seeing the speck. Maybe it's a grown adult child. And they've said, well, you know, I, they live across the country, and I'm not, you know, they're out of the house. And, but they see the speck, Lord. Give us the grace to speak in there. And Lord, give us the kind of humble, winsome, honest, vulnerable, Christ-exalting, spirit-filled community that when someone points out the speck, you say, thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. I needed that. I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better mother. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better friend. And I want to be as helpful to others as I can. Give us the grace to be that type of church and those types of families and that type of Christian. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.